Idaho doesn't need much help to make exploring the outdoors amazing, but Volkswagen of Boise is great about lending a helping hand. Their lineup of vehicles makes it easy to get the most out of exploring eateries across the valley in a Jetta, visiting the distant lands of eastern and northern Idaho in a Tiguan, or finding that one last secret camping hideaway in an Atlas Sport. Volkswagen has an accessory for every adventure. If you're not sure which option is best for your trip, their non-commissioned sales team will guide you down the right path at the right time for you. Come in anytime to see how Volkswagen of Boise can help you maximize your Idaho experience. Volkswagen, engineered to be helpful. For more info, go to www.volkswagenofboise.com. This is the Boise Bubble Podcast. Welcome back to the conversation. What we've noticed lately in Idaho, I think it's across the entire nation, is that uh, there seems to be a lot more aggressive debate about uh, hot topics, whether it's politics, religion. Um, the conversation or the state of the com- of conversation is tending to get a lot more agitated. It's harder to talk about things that matter with people that don't share our opinions. Um one of the podcasts that I listen to, uh, the guy mentions, he says that when we're dealing with people, the only two, two tools that we have are conversation or violence. When conversation runs out, the only thing that's left to, to us to resolve differences is violence. And I think that we're seeing a lot more violence pop up uh, recently, but um, also just a lot more agitation with each other. Um, the political spectrum, the religious spectrum, a lot of that has gotten very heated. So today we brought in a guest, Alexis Morgan, to help us talk through crucial conversations. What we like to do is talk through a little bit how to recognize them, what they're like, and how to navigate them. Maybe share some tools along the way to help people um, navigate and be more confident getting into talking about um, sensitive topics and hopefully come out of them with some better outcomes. Alexis, you are a an organizational culture consultant. Tell us a little bit about what that is and your history. Who are you and what do you do? Oh, thanks for asking. So I like to look at it like an umbrella. So I feel like I try to help people bridge the way they talk with, to, and about one another. And underneath that kind of really fall, falls culture, like the culture of our families, the culture of our workplace organizations, the culture of our community. So focusing on culture then and leadership development and communication and all of those different components to me makes up kind of what I'm interested in and how I try to help people. Mm. So my background is I started in education actually, and I love teenagers and working with them and they have such great insights into life. And so after working with teenagers for just a period of time, I really focused on my family and working to develop relationships with them. And one of the things that I noticed really early on in my 20s was that I felt like I didn't have good tools for navigating tough conversations. And I didn't have the emotional, I would say, intelligence, maybe that's the word that we would use in today's culture, to really navigate and understand my feelings because that really impacts the way that we interact with one another. And so I just got involved in lots of different groups over my uh, over my adulthood that really helped me interact with people that really gave me an opportunity to give back to my community and really helped me interact with people who were different from me so that I could learn how to 
learn from them and with them and just all of those different components. So fast forward several years after I got married in my early 20s, I started as a school board member on the Lewiston School District. We were living in North Central Idaho at the time. It was a great time to be a school board director in Lewiston. Some really cool things were happening in the community. And it was apparent that so many different things were going on where people felt like there was they were trying to get a new school bond passed, but there was major opposition to that as well. And there were some very heavy feelings. So I got to watch people walk through what it looked like to share a message and to hear from others on those differing viewpoints. And having been a school board member for a period of time, I wanted to further my education. So I went to the University of Idaho and got my master's in adult organizational learning and leadership. And that's where I really dove into organizational culture, how to work with other people, how adults learn and interact with one another. And I focused my master's project on something that was going on in Lewiston at the time, which was put on by a group of newspapermen, and it was dubbed the Civility Project because something had been happening in the community and they could tell that there was this, um, there was a problem. And so my whole master's project was really focusing and studying what they did to confront the incivility within the community. And coincidentally, I used, well, because we talk about crucial conversations, I used the framework from Crucial Conversations, the book, Mm -hmm. to study and map out what these newspapermen did in the community. Mm. And then after a period of time, my family, we now live in the Boise area. And I have, um, I've just done some different things to get involved in the community and trying to get a message out. And I recently, earlier this year, started my own consulting business, which is a totally new area for me to be in. But I really care about creating spaces where people can converse in a civil, respectful way and feel like they are heard and that they can walk away feeling good or at least leave space for the other person in that interaction. Mm. We have a lot of common ground. Um, one of them is I walked out of my childhood with zero tools to handle high stakes conversations, especially when it had to do with emotions. Um, just my family, we were incredibly, well, my parents were incredibly dysfunctional. No disrespect to them. They just didn't have have tools. Their parents didn't know tools. Like so much of this research and study that has gone into making this almost a science has happened during the during the seventies and eighties. So we're the beneficiaries of awesome books like Crucial Conversations. I remember the first time that I read it was for work. And there have been few books that really resonated with me that I changed a lot of core behaviors of how I acted, but also how I thought um, based on the insights that I got out of that book. It's awesome. So uh, the other common point is in our day jobs, I'm in organizational development. So that's kind of my focus too is culture, efficiencies, people. So uh, it sounds like we're cut from the same cloth. Awesome. I love it. Um, Natalie, what's your common ground? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, it's you were talking about reading uh, Crucial Conversations, which I I read as well. Um, I was on the side of watching Shane uh, integrate this into relationships and in with me. And feeling the um, 
discomfort of changing the way we had dialogue. That was difficult for me because it felt unnatural um, because I was used to we were moving in more emotional direction because that's just how we always had. And then he would come in and change the conversation to let's go back and and come from this place or let's use this tool to move forward. And I really didn't like it at first because what I felt like was I was being micromanaged in my communication. And I I am skilled in communication, so I um, I didn't want to know that I had so many tools I was lacking. But also this was obviously a very intimate relationship that we had. So I felt like it was removing – some of, I guess, just the candor. Um, and then moving past that to see um, while those feelings were valid, I needed to get over it because we never could even have a podcast together or raise teenagers together um, without the tools that we integrated, not just from this book, but from just in general of just how many tools we did not realize we were lacking as a married couple who we really did get along very well, but we were able to avoid so many stumbling blocks. So, and I don't work in organizational development. I work in social media. Um, I think I would say I come from a place of seeing um, society dealing with this insanely fast change of communication. And I've been working in social media for 15 years, and 15 years is a millisecond in human culture and society, and we're reeling with the consequences of how communication has changed. So I would say that's kind of where I'm coming from in in that Mm. that realm. Yeah, you've seen some pretty discouraging examples of, I guess, the masses at large and how we're dealing with um, some of these topics Mm -hmm. and areas. And also seeing, I think, how desperate people are for that to not be the case, that there are some very loud people and you see them a lot, but that the majority of people truly do want to have conversation. They want to get to a place um, where they're connecting with people. But again, they they don't know how. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, th- I think that one of the goals that we have today is not to highlight specific groups or ideologies or, or anything like that. In fact, the whole idea of conversation is to acknowledge difference of opinion. So Mm -hmm. I think that it's important that we recognize and let people have different ways of believing or thinking Mm -hmm. about things. What we want to do is how do we come together? What are some common tools that we can employ to get better results and to keep the dialogue open so that we can talk about those differences without shutting shutting things down? Sure. At the same time, there are specific examples that are obvious going, you know, that have risen. Politics, obviously. I um, mean, there's Alexis, so much Alexis, you division. just went to something. Do you mind telling us a little bit how the conversation started with why we were doing this podcast? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So earlier, um, I went to a lecture by that was put on by the Frank Church Society, which is a part of the Frank Church Institute, which is within Boise State. So they invited a woman. Her name is Amy Hertzfeld Koppel, and she's the deputy director of programs and strategic initiatives at the Western State Center in Oregon. And she came in to speak about rising white nationalists and anti-democracy movements. And it was a really interesting uh, lecture from her to hear about what's happening in the nation today, what is kind of the history behind some of these groups, and 
what is being done or what can be done to help promote democracy, to help people be able to move forward in a civil way. And from this conversation, I was just thinking about, well, what could I do? What what could I do as Alexis Morgan in my you know Treasure Valley community? And one of the things I thought about was, wow, I know someone who is on a podcast and I wonder if this is a conversation that she would be willing to have. So actually I reached out to Natalie and because I don't know if I saw that you had posted about the book or something, but I reached out to you and you said, yeah, totally. Let's have this conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how it all originated. Yeah. So let's just kind of um, lay out some basic definition of terms. How would you define a crucial conversation? It's a really good question. So for me, a crucial conversation is Anytime something turns to a topic that matters to us, where we're going to feel emotion about it, potentially a conversation where we can anticipate that someone is not going to like what we have to say, or we're anticipating that they don't like, or or vice versa, Mm -hmm. I would say. Um, Any sort of hot topic is going to be a crucial conversation. And any sort of topic that maybe, sometimes we don't know when a conversation is going to turn tough. So there's the anticipation of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Would you add, What would you add to that? Um, I think that you summarized it very well. Um, uh, my take would be anytime, I mean, what does the book say? The book says- um, oh, High stakes. Uh, when the stakes are high, when opinions vary, and when emotions are strong. Mm-hmm. When it meets those three criteria, then you f- can find yourself in a, in a heated conversation. And most people, when they find themselves in those, they- they don't manage them well. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you can either manage them well, or, or most people tend to avoid crucial conversations. When you know those boxes get checked, they'll keep the peace and they just kind of avoid it. And I think that that was the mantra of the generation of the 50s is you don't talk about politics and you don't talk about religion, but you don't talk about them. That's, a, that's a avoidance. Mm-hmm. The alternative is to handle them, but handle them well or handle them and handle them poorly. Most of us, I think that we handle them poorly because of the lack of some of these tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that's how I would describe a crucial mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. And sorry, the final one that I would say is, is just that where we don't know the outcome or the outcome or the solution isn't readily apparent. Mm-hmm. Not quite sure where we're, how we're going to get through this or what the other side looks like. Mm-hmm. That uncertainty, I think, can cause a lot of those heightened states. I think one of the reasons we wanted to release this in November, <laughs> we were talking about when, is that there is a reason why in television and in movies we have this continual scene of everyone sitting around the um, Thanksgiving table and there's some kind of erupting. And it's bec- because we have all these people with that love each other and that are thankful for each other and want to be together, and yet they are not the same people. They do not have the same belief systems and they don't have the tools, but they are, they're sitting there or they're in this moment where they're all in, in each other's presence. And we don't know how to handle that many emotional ties that are that close. That's one of the things that when you, when we talk about crucial conversations, I can have crucial conversations all day long with someone who is a professional, but it's so much more difficult, so much more difficult difficult when it's a family member um, because our emotions override us so quickly and I think we can every single one of us has examples of that whether it's dealing with their mom regarding their sexuality whether it's talking to their grandpa regarding their belief structure in politics everyone has those relationships that they kind of fear that outcome because there's no vision that it could ever turn out well 
-hmm. and the stakes are high. I mean, when it's family, you're, you're bound to these people by blood or marriage for, you know, most of your life. Mm -hmm. So getting along and finding a way to live together, I think is everybody wants that, Mm -hmm. right? Most people. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. We should never assume all most people. (laughs) Um, when you consult with businesses, how do you teach them to recognize crucial conversations when they're in them? So that's a great question. Um, I would just say, I, I think it really just kind of goes back to what we were defining in terms of what those tough conversations are. And one of the things that I, I think are really helpful to understand right from the start is that we cannot control anyone else. Just like Natalie was giving that example about how Shane, you were making that change and you brought it to Natalie and Natalie was like, this is uncomfortable. I don't like this. So there is no, I think, well, I know people don't like to be controlled. And so just kind of giving them those tools, those leaders as an option to say, hey, these are the tools that you can use to have a conversation with your coworkers, employees, however you want to manage that. And acknowledging that you're going to have to leave space. I always like visualize that leave space for someone else to have their own experiences and know and have your own personal boundary awareness that sometimes it's time to walk away from that conversation. Because even though you're going to have all the tools, you might have all that awareness to be successful. That doesn't mean the other person wants to meet you there. So be comfortable and be Be comfortable enough to say, it's time for me to walk away from this conversation and own it and not put that on somebody else. Like, for example, the thing not to say would be, you're getting too emotional for me, so I need to walk away from this. That is like an X, don't say that. Mm -hmm. Because then all of a sudden, the person who's talking, who's saying that, is not taking ownership for what they can handle in that conversation. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, so it's a, I need to take a time out from what we are talking about. I care about you. This is something I want to come back to, but I need to take a time and just it's kind of It's about regroup. them, not about the person they're talking to. Exactly. I need to step away, not mm-hmm. you are doing something that I, I, I don't want you to do. Right. I feel like those are judgment statements. You are too mm-hmm. emotional. You're too triggered. Well, yes. who are you to say that I'm too triggered or too, too mm-hmm. emotional? All of a sudden, those feelings put me into a place of combat. Now I have to defend myself. I'm not emotional. Mm-hmm. You're the one, in fact, that's maybe too sensitive. Right. So those statements, yeah. Th- that concept, I think, was one of the first things that really stuck in my mind is I have n- – I cannot I- – I'm not guaranteed to change anybody else's mind except for my own. I'm the only person over whom I have 100% control. I mean, think about it. When was the last time that you had a difference of opinion with somebody and you were able to bring them over to your side by your argument? That doesn't happen very often for most people. Well, and it's not the, as an, as an individual approaching a conversation, people are going to be able to track what your intention is for the conversation. So if your intention for that conversation is to try to win someone to your side, it's not going to be successful because that person probably is going to like dig their heels in. But if the concept, right, is to add to that pool of understanding, add to the knowledge that's between you two, then you're going to learn. Because I think one of the greatest things someone can say to me I can only reference myself. One of the things that that I enjoy people say to me is, oh, you really got me thinking about that. Mm. I just think that's such a compliment. Yeah, but how often does that happen? Let's be frank about the situation we're living in, okay? (laughs) 
people are not interested in learning and not curious about what you think. What they want to do and what we're seeing over and over again is that they're yelling and they're covering their ears. And if you don't listen and believe what they say, they're angry. We're looking at I'm I'm seeing this obviously in politics. This is nonstop. We do not know how to come to a place from curiosity anymore. And Shane and I talk about this a lot because I'm always trying to figure out what's the stem, what's the root. And for me, it's this, there is one way to be. There is one way to live. And it is through the lens that I see. And you were wrong. And that's it. And that is a place where conversation dies. And that's a place where connection dies. But how do we open up an entire society to think, Maybe the way we think is just through our lens and there's room to grow and learn. And I don't see that very often. And I have a lot of opinions like from my from social media, especially why that's happening. You talk sometimes about choice paralysis that, you know, the masses that we have paralysis of how many decisions we have to make. Um, And there's so many things that we could be interested in or, you know, we need to think about or research. But um, who has time for stuff like that? My own personal opinion is that I think that that's why people lean on institutions. They align themselves with an institution because the institution might give them um, a structure of belief. They're really great at at, um, outlining black and white. But the reality is that our situations, none of them are black and white. We live in constant shades of gray, different opinions, different perspectives, different values. that doesn't lend itself to black and white conversation. And yet a lot of organizations, they try to place it, uh, structure it. The premise is it's this way or the other way. Mm-hmm. No in between. I'm not sure if I kind of rambled on with that one, but. No, well, I agree with that. Uh, well, and I think, so I'm one of these people that I often, even though there's a lot of hard things in life, I'm just always trying to find the silver lining. And so for people who are listening, I just think you can start with yourself. If enough people start with themselves, enough people can make their change in their family, at their workplace, within their communities. There's always going to be keyboard warriors out there who hide behind their computer and ramble off and are really rude and disrespectful. And Natalie, I've heard you address that, you know, through your social media content. And, you you know, you've decided on how you wanted to deal with that in your work. And I think it's really important for you I have really enjoyed that you have taken a stand. And I think that that's sometimes what people have to do when they are in these scenarios. I know I had a scenario in my own life where I knew that someone wasn't going to think the same way I was. And so just trying to model that it's okay that we think differently and I'm going to leave space for you to be frustrated with me and and work through those different things and maybe, maybe we can come back together and have some kind of an interaction that feels good to both of us. But right now, it maybe just needs to be a little bit separate. And kind of to that point of, you know, people aren't making the changes necessary. And there's so much, I mean, this is why I went to a lecture on what's happening. There are enough people who care about this. And so those people need to come together to try to educate themselves, learn from where they are so that they can make changes. I mean, we've seen some great things just even in the the Treasure Valley. I I saw um, I saw a, a large institution that was targeted by a group who was promoting hate, 
harassment and lies about this institution. I saw this institution stand up boldly Mm -hmm. and say, no, this isn't okay. And it was really awesome that this institution stood up and said that because I don't know if you want me to say who the institution was, but um, it's up to you. Okay. Well, it was St. Luke's. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that were happening with them. And I know a lot of people were really happy that St. Luke stood up and said, no, that's that's not okay that this that this occurred. And I'm just really grateful for people, for institutions who are standing up and saying, this isn't okay. There is a better way to do this. And we're not going to tolerate hate, intolerance, you know, threats and harassment and violence. That's what we don't want. And that's not okay. Mm. So why do people move to hate and threats and violence because we I think as humanity we would all say that's bad and yet people get triggered into this into this feeling especially when we have um, very extreme versions of uh, politics or religion and they feel deeply that this is the only way to fix America this is the only way to fix religion this is only this is the only way to fix sexual or whatever they're whatever that they are well i like to call it the difference between someone who is a zealot and someone who is passionate about something someone who is passionate about something is someone who feels strongly about something and continues to learn and continues to have conversations and a zealot is somebody who has chosen there is one way of existence it is only this way and will will revert to violence or threats or or yelling. Um, so my I'm always I'm always coming down to how do we resolve this issue? And normally the people who I would classify as zealots are not interested in self-actualization and and understanding. They're not they have made a choice. This is who I am, this is what I believe, this is the only way to be. So how, what are tools for that kind of individual where they could move from, because there's nothing wrong with being impassioned. It's great. Like have mm-hmm. strong beliefs. How do we move from being an, a zealot to an impassioned individual who can move towards communication? Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that one of the first keys that we often train on in, you know, in the corporate world is recognize that right away when you find ask yourself the complicit question do i believe that my way is the only way that my opinion is the right opinion if you can ask yourself these questions and say yes that's probably a pretty good indication that your ears have closed and you're not listening you're not to a point where you want to have dialogue that's what dialogue is dialogue is the exchange of information to create what was it that you called it earlier the pool the common pool of understanding. Yeah, the pool of understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you can have dialogue, you're both contributing to it and trying to understand what's in it so that then you can make some decisions about how to proceed. But if dialogue is shut off or if dialogue is, you know, not handled well, then, you know, you've you got your ears closed or, um, yeah. And it feels like there's some words that we could use when we're in that position where you, like, Let's say I have a, a grandpa. I'll say that because I, I don't have any living grandpa, so I'm not calling anyone out. Let's say I have a grandpa, and he just does not um, he does not like the way I'm moving spiritually, right? So he's 
it's become a barrage instead of a conversation of, of him, you know, attacking or this is the only way. I feel like um, there's words that can calm that situation. If you can stay calm under attack, which is difficult, and I'm trying to learn that, but to say, to very openly look right at that person and say, I feel like we've gone to a point where you have chosen not to listen anymore. And if 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 we're not listening to each other, I feel like maybe this conversation doesn't need to continue. To have things to slow that down, to calm that person, but is it still respectful? Um, even though that's it, so hard when they're not being respectful to you. That mm-hmm. is so unbelievably hard. To be the person who can say, I don't feel like you're respecting my opinion on this and I don't feel like you're really wanting to hear. I feel like that a lot with uh, with proselyting. Uh, I, I've been in countries where uh, religious proselyting is very ag- aggressive. <laughs> and I always wanted to say, I feel like if you came curious um, and asked me some questions and were also interested in learning, this would go a lot differently. Um, so I think that's important to, to, to be able to have the control in those conversations to shut them down in like a calm way so mm-hmm. that they can't also judge you for, for your outburst. You say shut down. Do you mean like set boundaries? For the conversation, how yeah. to shut down the conversation. Someone told me once that if, um, if a conversation is moving and you know that there's absolutely no way that that person is going to hear you in any way, there's no point in continuing the conversation. So why not just shut that conversation down? Mm. I mean, why continue to fight over and over and over? Well, yeah. I mean, there are examples. I have one recently in my life. There was something that happened with a neighbor, actually. And uh, I went over and was talking to my neighbor, and he had a very particular he had a very specific opinion about what had occurred in something that had happened earlier. And I was there simply just to inform him that I would be notifying the next level of enforcement because of something that had happened. And I just wanted to kind of reiterate, I I really wanted to check in to make sure that this was him. I didn't want to, you know, tell the next level up that this wasn't my neighbor if it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And he confirmed very quickly that it was, but he was so aggressive. He was very angry and aggressive at the door. And I finally just said to him as he was just going and going and going, hey, I'm here to, I was here to inquire. I did that. You confirmed to me that that was the case. I appreciate that. And now I'm, I'm going to leave. Mm -hmm. And so like to the point, being able to acknowledge when we approach these conversations, when we approach these tough things that we're talking about, being able to self-regulate and understand what we're feeling and when we need to lay out that boundary and when it's appropriate to say, I can't continue in this conversation anymore. So if someone's sitting at the dinner table, right, at Thanksgiving time and they're stuck next to Aunt Susie and Aunt Susie is, I mean, sorry if someone actually has Aunt Susie that they love. I'm just <laughs> picked a name here. <laughs> but they're stuck next to Aunt Susie and Aunt Susie is getting a little aggressive or really opinionated. That's at the point where it's, it's like, hey, Aunt Susie, I love you. And I am interested in your thoughts. I'm feeling attacked at this moment. So maybe we need to shift gears. Or do you might is are you able to say it in a different way to help me understand what your opinion is? Because I do care and I do want to understand. So in really laying out those, I care. I'm here to listen. I'm feeling attacked. Yeah. Why do you think that we're attacking so much? 
what what's happening that we've gotten to this point in the last I would say seven years that uh, these tools are becoming so much more important, but we're we're failing. It's a great question. I think there's a lot of different reasons. One would I one I would say there are not good examples politically on the television, in the news, on social media where people are modeling good behavior. This is where we know people learn a lot about behavior. Certainly they're not learning it in the high school, right? There's not an emotional intelligence classroom kids are taking. Mm-hmm. And a lot of families, I mean, Shane, to your earlier point, a lot of families don't know how to navigate these tough things, these tough conversations. And so while I know different political leaders have done a good job in specific aspects of their roles, there is not an incentive for political leaders to come together and collaborate. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing examples of collaboration. And if we're not seeing examples of it, then... People aren't picking up on those. They're seeing the negative examples. That's what they're picking up on, and that's what they're moving forward with because they're seeing, oftentimes they're seeing success in people getting done what they want to get done. That aggressive power moving forward, I'm in control, that's what we're seeing. I think that's one thing. I mean, what do you guys think? Mm. No, I'm just thinking of how often I've seen that. That is uh, definitely the case in my experience. It seems like a lot of temper tantrums that we're seeing, temper tantrums that we're giving into. And uh, I see it from a a social media standpoint. Um, I love social media. You know, I've been working in it for a long time. Um, The the impacts are, um, I think we will look back in a couple generations and be um, shocked at what we've let happen so quickly. Uh, Shane and I talk a lot about, um, what we talk about the algorithm a lot. I don't know if people understand what that algorithm really does. So if you're in social media, social media wants to keep you there. Social media wants you there as long as possible and they incentivize creators. There's a lot of things. What I don't, I don't know if people understand is something called the information echo chamber, chamber. And what that is is that social media will learn what you believe, what you like, what makes you feel good and happy, and they will continue to feed it. And what is happening is that people are being fed the same message over and over again all day long, and they are not learning what it even feels like to have a different understanding so when they are presented with that differing thought, they react violently because it seems as if their entire existence is being called out um, when that wouldn't have been the case before social media. In my opinion, I think that it's because there's a safety risk. That's what the book talks about a, a lot. People either feel that they've been disrespected or that the book says mutual purpose, but when you believe that your mutual purpose is in jeopardy, when we don't see, when when we don't want the same things anymore, then that's very destabilizing, and people feel a, a safety risk. And most people, when they feel a risk to their safety, they either move towards silence or they move towards violence. They either 
withdraw or they'll avoid or they'll mask what they feel or on the violence side, they'll attack or punish or um, uh, there are a lot of tactics to reach out and be aggressive towards others. But I think that the root cause is a safety risk. Like a personal safety risk? Risk to their belief system, risk to their Mm -hmm. place in the world, risk to our relationship. Maybe our relationship, uh, I I sense that it's not as strong or stable as I would want it to be because of this difference of uh, opinion. So you're meaning it like more personally. I always look back, for some reason, the Crusades are like such a huge thing for me Mm -hmm. because it's like, okay, you have Christianity, which at its core is kindness, love, forgiveness, uh, you know, all this, what the core element. And then we have the crusades. You don't believe this. So we're going to murder you all. And, and it's like uh, the first time I ever read about the crusades, like, you know, junior high, it stuck in my brain so much of what, because I'd only been raised in this happy, you know, everyone, you know, loves each other. And then I'm like, how can we go from that how can we go to basic principles and then move into such horrific violence? Mm-hmm. And we see that with so many things is that we we hold on very tightly to a core and we stop realizing what it's moving towards because the core is still good. The core of our belief structure is still good. And yet we we are not acknowledging all of this toxicity. So then when somebody else comes and acknowledges that t- toxicity – it messes with us a little bit and it, it violates kind of our core principles. Yeah. So one of the things I'm hearing is that, especially with this mutual purpose thing and what you're talking about, Natalie, even just with the example of from the crusades is fear. So people, I think it's this fear of not having a mutual purpose. It's a fear of maybe something else taking over and it's a fear of not feeling confident in one's own ability in making decisions for ourselves and what we believe and leaving that space for somebody else to have different beliefs. So I heard someone express this story once. I thought it was so cool. She talked about how she had this belief in her religion and she felt very strongly about it. And she had a family member who moved away from the religion. And so she found herself avoiding spending time with that particular sibling because she was afraid of the conversations that would occur, that he would try to prove her wrong and and all of these different things. And she realized that if she felt and believed good about what she wanted to, then that shouldn't change based on someone else's opinion. And so she worked to bridge that gap between the two of them. And she worked to be able to say, you know, I can still feel the way that I want to feel and maybe I can learn from my sibling and maybe I won't. But his opinions shouldn't impact me if I don't want them to. I can still feel good about what I'm doing. And so I just I think that a lot of people are afraid. They have that fear. And so that interrupts then that mutual purpose and causes people to do all sorts of different things. Like when I think of some of these radical groups or these people who are promoting their thoughts and feelings on social media, it's so much of it's just based on fear and the fear of maybe someone else coming in and taking control of their environment. You know, when I think about these anti-democracy movements or the rising white nationalists, that's what I think of as fear. I don't know. What do you get? Something about the way that you said it, that being able 
my behavior should not be changed or the way that I think doesn't have to change by others' opinion unless I let it. Um, it makes me think of cancel culture, right? Yes. It's like, and Natalie, you talk about this often. It's so many people get upset about what you post on your page and they like 95% of it, but 5% of it, it just really infuriates them. And we always ask ourselves, well, then why don't you just keep scrolling? Like, we're not asking you to believe something. We're just putting it, it people put different opinions out there all the time, but because there's a different opinion out there, it doesn't mean that you need to hate it and act to cancel it. You should just be able to say, well, that's okay. That's their opinion. I don't believe that way and move on. But I don't see much exa- many examples out there of people just moving on. Well, I think there's a, a, I think there's a couple reasons why that might be. One is that we are so overwhelmed by choices and decisions that we have to make because of the, the entire world is our playground now. I was just telling Shane, like in the last week, I've had to um, do some research on Ukraine, on Iran, um, on what's happening with the new housing market in relationship to the pandemic. Like society hasn't always had to know so much to understand. And so I think there's a paralysis going on and that we're shutting down where we are we're saying this is what I believe, and that's it. I'm done. I'm tired. I don't want to have to think about everything in the world. I don't want to have to research everything. I want someone else to make my choice. And they will, it's almost like a cowering down. And the thing is, is I get that. Like sometimes I feel like that. I don't want to have to learn anything else because there's too much. And so we will let an entity or a party or a a partner speak for us. But then you say that we, we come at it fear. I think when you, let's talk about that person who had the family member who left the sibling. There are people who are afraid because they don't want their minds to be changed because that's hard. And my belief is that if you don't have enough confidence in your belief system to let it be questioned, that's a problem. We should be available for learning the reality of our reality. And that might be very difficult. But what we've been taught in our in these entities is that we should not be curious because this is correct and believe it exactly as it is. So when we stop being curious and we are afraid that our personal belief structure might be damaged, we will shut off. And that's where I think we move into violence because it's almost like a cowering dog who will attack when anyone says that might not be the right way, but but we want to be done learning. Mm-hmm. So two things I was thinking of while you guys were talking. One, Shane, with this concept of cancel culture, I tell people all the time I don't prescribe, I don't subscribe to that um, because I see it on a like we see it all over the place and I just think when we do that we don't permit people to be human and I want to be human I am flawed and I have innate value and I need to have the permission to make mistakes and to learn from them and move forward so when we cancel people what we're saying is you don't get permission to be a human and if we're saying that to somebody else then people need to turn around and say it to themselves And no one is without flaws. 
that's a standard that none of us can reach. Exactly. That there's no room for error. What a wonderful way to say that, that we need to have space to be human. And part of that is failing and recovering from failure without being written off for final judgment to say, nope, you said this one thing. And therefore, you are dead to us. Well, everyone wants to be seen as an extremely complex individual, but we don't want to see everyone else as a complex individual because, again, it's too hard. It's too hard to have to learn about so many people. So I will see you as this. I will I will label you as this, this, and this. That is all you are. However, I expect to be seen as a multidimensional human and to be judged that way. And we're just not doing that. We're judging them based on the most simple titles because, again, we're tired. Like, we've gone through a lot, and we are dealing with information um, excess like we've never seen. So the second thing that I was thinking of, Natalie, when you were talking about the belief structures is an excellent book. It's one of my favorite by Adam Grant. Have you guys read any of his I material? I love Adam Grant. Like I've never read anything. I'm not like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm obsessed with you. Yeah. He wrote a book called Think Again. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he spoke about in this book, which I recommend every soul on the earth read, is this idea of how people gather information to form their opinion. And I'm not going to remember all of the three, but, you know, sometimes people think like politicians, sometimes people think like preachers, sometimes people think like there's another P in there. I can't remember. It's how they argue. But then another way to think. Prosecutor? Yes. Mm -hmm. Very. You read it. (laughs) (laughs) Where people are taking all of their information based on emotional feelings or, or based on all of that stuff. And then they have that feeling and they're gathering all the information to support that idea versus what Adam Grant suggests is thinking like a scientist. So when you think like a scientist, you're not forming an opinion first. You might have an idea like a hypothesis, but a scientist is willing to learn from all the different data points that come in. And then based on those data points that come in, then they come to a conclusion from those data points. It's really hard to do. It's not something that can happen all the time in life, right? He's not suggesting that everyone do this all the time. But if people can get reflective on how they've come to that opinion, then they themselves might be able to work themselves out of it. Do you think that's possible with modern day religion and the way that it's promoted? I think it's possible. I think anything is possible because I think people are able to learn and grow and change. I mean, I know that from my own experience, I'm a, let's see, in November, let's see, by the time this podcast comes out, I will be 40. Mm -hmm. Happy birthday. Thank you. (laughs) It's a big deal. I'm excited. And over the last 22 years being an adult, my opinion has changed a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that Adam Grant says is people change their style. I think he says this. People change their style all the time but they're holding on to political beliefs from 1995. Mm -hmm. And I just love that imagery of the concept. And so I just think, gosh, you know, I'm someone who was pretty black and white early on when I was like 18. And now as a 40-year-old, I'm not. I see the world from a totally different perspective. And it's because I have had people in my life challenge my opinion. Early on in my early 20s, I remember sitting with a with another couple with my husband and we were talking about oh contraceptives and we were talking about sex education and I had an opinion about it and I said it and I wasn't mean I just was like this is really how I feel I Mm -hmm. I think I feel pretty pretty strongly about this 
And my friend, he came back and he said, but Alexis, think about it from this perspective. And one, I knew that he cared about me. I knew that he had thought and been reflective on it. So I wanted to take his opinion seriously. And he had never given me any reason not to trust his intention or our relationship. And from his opinion, I thought, I might not be thinking about, I might not be seeing this whole picture. And so I do, if I feel like I can do that, I feel like anyone can do that based on regard, you know, regardless of the topic, anything is possible. Boy, something about what you said, trust their intention, never gave you any reason to, to distrust that he had the best intention for the relationship. I feel like there's a real key there Mm -hmm. that if you, if you know that you're good with the other person, if you have mutual purpose, mutual intention, whatever you want to call it, but that you're both committed to the relationship above all, then you can say some hard things or maybe some, you know, some things with some rough edges and have them heard a lot better. I think it's when that attent- when that intention is called into question that sometimes it's hard for us to listen. Why would I listen to somebody who doesn't have my best intentions or... Uh, at heart. So it's how do we easy prove to that? discount that. Like, how do we prove that to each other? Like, if I'm going to be a person where I want people to trust that I'm actually curious about them, mm-hmm. what am I doing and what would I not do? Like, I, I think so often we have these things that we're doing. We don't realize we're alienating, we're alienating people. So there's a difference between, I heard this idea, because it's a good question, Natalie. There's a difference between self-awareness and self-confrontation. So it's easy to be, it's easier, I'm going to using air quotes, maybe, or to be self-aware and to kind of be reflective and, you know, we're like, oh, I'm not doing that bad of a job. I mean, it's kind of just us asking ourselves those questions. Mm-hmm. Self-confrontation is really taking a good hard look in the mirror. What am I doing and how how am I doing in this relationship, for example? So with a spouse, our spouse can often track our intention or behavior better than we are willing to see it. So I think one of the things that I've seen people do in their marriages, with their friendships, are go to people and say, is there something that I'm doing that is happening that would maybe make you cause not to trust me or maybe think that I'm trying to be controlling in this scenario or wanting to be right Because people, um, Dr. David Schnarch talks about this a lot in his book. I think it's called Mind Mapping. It's fascinating. It's a really good book. It's super thick and heavy if you want to read it. But how people are so good at tracking each other. Mm. We're really good at tracking intentions, like tracking behavior, tracking those intentions based on just human behavior. I was going to say, I think that that's a defense mechanism that we've just evolved is we have to be seeing if we're safe and how do I know that I can trust you? I just think of the old West, like all the time, there's so much mistrust and to build trust, you have to be able to look at somebody and their behavior and say, trustworthy or not trustworthy. Yeah. And one of the best ways to build trust with someone is to simply be trustworthy. So this is something that I have worked on even just in my own family as I have had teenagers and as they've grown, sometimes trust is broken. And as you know, it's hard to rebuild that. And so there have been times where I've just have been, I feel like just trying to have candor with people can work really well if you know that that space is willing to tolerate it. So I've had, I've had conversations with family members where I've said, 
I want to trust you. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be following up and take personal responsibility of, you know, following up on this because you haven't always been trustworthy for me. And I want to develop that with you, right? And so even when we're sitting around Thanksgiving table and we're having conversations with people and all of a sudden it feels like so-and-so sitting to our right is trying to prove that we're wrong, that's when people are going to want to start shutting down because they're no longer feeling cared about or concerned. They're feeling like they're wrong. That's the message that they're getting from the person to their right. And that's what people don't want to feel. So we don't want to feel that. So let's think about how do we fix that situation. So I want to come, I want tools. Like I'm always looking, this is a nice conversation. How do I make it work for me? Mm-hmm. So I would guess one of the questions is, as a person, do I go to somebody because I want them to understand they're wrong? And is that ever a valid place to come? Am I, is it ever okay for me to say, hey, you're wrong and I'm going to tell you why? No, I would, I, I would say no. And I would ask yourself, it's, it's all about asking yourself questions. So why do you feel like you need to go and tell someone that they're wrong? Can I ask the whole whole country? Why do you feel like you need to make people feel like they're wrong? Okay, that question's out there. So maybe the question is, why do I need to make someone feel that they're wrong? And if it's important for you to share your feelings, what's a better way to go about it? Right? How do I get what I want? Mm-hmm. And like, what is it you want? Yeah, what is it that I really want, right? Mm-hmm. I have this situation, the difference of opinion, what is it that I really want? Do I want to prove them wrong? Or I think that if you go through that exercise of asking yourself your intention, what is it that you want? What is it that, that and sometimes that's a, that's a multifaceted question. What do I want for me, right? Mm-hmm. What do I want for you? And what do I want, I want for us? That's, oh, go ahead. That is like so key, Shane, because if we're going and we're solely thinking about ourselves, That's not a good conversation to be. Don't go into that conversation that way. Mm -hmm. When you're thinking about what do I want for me? What do I want for the other person? And what do I want for the two of us? You're now approaching that conversation like, hey, we can both walk away feeling good or 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 simply that we both felt heard in this conversation. But you're not entering that conversation with the intention to win, to be right, to prove them wrong, to make them feel bad. You're thinking about the other person, too, which is a really important part of the whole puzzle. Most people, sorry, this just kind of pops into my mind, and I'm just going to blurt it out. But I think that when they're sharing their strong opinions, very few people think about what it is that they really want. Like, what do I want to accomplish with this? Like, what am I hoping that they say? Am I hoping that they change their opinion? Am I hoping that they change their mind? Am I hoping that they act differently? Okay, well, is the way that I'm going about it right now getting me closer to or further from what that is? I don't think people are asking that in many cases. I think they're just mad. Yeah. but I think a lot of us are just pissed. But that's the issue is that we're stopping with just being angry. And I'm not saying that's good. I'm saying that's a very difficult place we're feeling is people coming at us instantly angry. So that's what the tool is. The tool is ask yourself what you want. And is what I'm doing getting me closer to what I want or getting me further away? And if you're willing to be honest with yourself and ask those questions, then I think that most people will find an area to improve how they're going about it Mm -hmm. or to change how they're going about it. So one of the things that 
is one of my favorite ways to think about emotions and, and thinking are that, I mean, they're doing a lot of research within the last, I don't know, X number of years. I'm not an expert on this, but I've read that they're doing a lot of research on how our feelings impact our thinking, right? Our emotions definitely impact the way that we think. So this is why emotional intelligence is so important. But when people start feeling emotions, when they start, you're having a conversation, I'm feeling excited or worried, right? And you're feeling all these different things. They can do two different things. They can react or they can respond. And what Natalie, what you're experiencing so much on social media is the reaction Mm -hmm. instead of the responding. So when people react, they feel that emotion and it just comes right on out. There's no filter whatsoever. When people respond, they are thoughtful about all the things that they're feeling, right? They might get out to five feelings and then they start backtracking a little bit to try to understand. And then they go and respond based on being thoughtful about what their feelings are. I was just thinking about the ability to state your feelings about, you know, so responding versus reacting, what you said to me made me feel unheard. And just leave it at that. You don't have to, ju- to judge what they said. All that you're saying is, this is what you did, and this is how it made me feel. Mm-hmm. And the ability to leave that space open, you keep talking about open space, to be able to leave that space open, give them a chance to say, oh, shoot, I didn't mean it like that. What I meant to say was such and such. But being able to just state how objectively that made me feel triggered. Yes. That made me feel hurt. That hurt me how you said that. It also personalizes you instead of just being someone. It's You're not just a wall. They're, they realize that you are actually taking that in and feeling that as another human mm-hmm. being. I don't get that a lot on social media. They don't. I think people don't see me that way. I, I don't know. You guys tell me what, how if I handle this correctly. But I was at an event and a gentleman came up to me. He's like, I'm trying to decide if I want to um, support you in what you do. I need to know what your thoughts are on abortion. And he just and I was like, excuse me. Crazy. I had never met this person. And I was like, I'm going to walk away now. And I did. Uh, and he was mad and, and told many people that he was mad and then decided what my opinion was based on that, you know. But my, I kept thinking about this. <laughs> Who taught him that that kind of a, a conversation or was appropriate in any way? Um, but he was not curious. He was wanting to make sure that I fit in whatever his viewpoint was so that I was either good or bad. And that's what I think a lot of people are looking for is, this is how I believe. If you don't fit into this, you're not valid. And I will I will ask you questions just to verify if you are correct or not correct. If you are not correct, then we're done. And that, to me, is terrifying. If he had come up to me, well, I, actually, I don't think there's any, there's never an appropriate time for what, what this gentleman did. But there were many other ways he could have found out about me or been curious about me as a human as instead of just, I think, a almost, I don't know, what's the word? He was, uh, what's the word? I'm, when men make women, uh, <laughs> why am I forgetting this? I don't know the safe answer to this. Oh, yeah, there's probably no safe. Anyway, I'll think on it. Um, Gallup has an interesting statistic that I throw out there all the time, um, that in all their research and studies, they have said that the chances of finding somebody who looks at the world the way that you do 
with the same values, the same perspective, through the same lens, is one in 33 million. That means in this whole country of 180 million people, there are six people, five others besides you, that see the world through your value set. That is a small camp. So when a guy like that asks that question, I need to know what you believe so that I can uh, decide whether or not you're good or bad. There's going to be five people in the whole country, if he can find them, that are going to meet that criteria. we got to find a different criteria. Yes. So it reminds me when we were moving around after medical school, well, a fellowship, and trying to find a place to live. And we had looked in a few different places, and we were actually in Lewiston, Idaho, trying to, we were trying to decide if we were going to live there. And the hospital recruiter, as I was, she was like, so what do you think? And I was going through and talking to her about it. She said, people think that they're going to get 100% of things on their list. And mm-hmm. the fact is, you're not. You are going to be lucky, Alexis, if you get 75% per thing, seventy-five percent of things on your list. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting way to look at it. I hadn't thought about it. And she, and I even, I, I took that idea and have placed it on so many different ideas, spouse, friends, even religion, right? Political leaders, politics in general, where we work. We're never, Shane, to your point with the Gallup study, we're never going to get 100% of anyone thinking the same way that we do. And because of that, it's so important for people to figure out how to be okay with people who think differently from them. And I loved your example of saying to someone, I, I, don't, I don't feel heard in this moment. I feel like you're not hearing my opinion. I had a friend years ago that I was sitting at lunch with. I was in, I was probably about 30 and we were sitting and we were talking and she, I knew she was so different from me. And it was one of the things that intrigued me about the friendship that she thought about life so differently. And as we're sitting at the dinner table and we were talking, she was talking about something that was hard for her. And because at the time I was like, oh, I'm just such a fixture. I want to help her in this moment. I told her what I do. I was like, oh, well, this is what I do. And she looked at me and she said, I'm so glad that works for you. (laughs) (laughs) And that was her way of saying, Alexis, I feel so unheard Mm -hmm. and very small from your remark. And she, what she did was she gave me the opportunity to say, whoa, I'm really sorry. That is not what I meant to say. Mm -hmm. I, I was trying to... You know, and we kind of worked through that a little bit. And so being comfortable to say, wow, that really makes me feel uncomfortable in that moment to give people the opportunity maybe to express what they are trying to get across is, is one thing, right? When we're sitting with people and families or, or coworkers that we care about. But then, Natalie, also to your point of, wow, you know, this guy came up and he's talking and asking you a totally irrelevant, you know, not relevant question at all based on what you did, you know, you made a judgment call and your judgment call was, I don't want to have this conversation with this man. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm walking, you know, I'm walking away. Um, I've heard about people talk about examples where you can, if you're interested in trying to get someone else to think differently, to ask some questions, you know, follow up like, well, what do you think? Or why does that matter to you? Right. Mm -hmm. But you, every person has to make a judgment call based on where they are. So if you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table 
and this relationship matters to you. It's probably not the place to get up and do that unless you feel like, oh, I really, I got to do this to make a point. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a scenario like that, maybe it is the best judgment call to just walk away because you don't have the time or you're going to set that boundary for yourself. And that's, you know, that's the right move for you. Yeah, you don't owe anyone you don't owe everyone a conversation, especially when they're unsafe. I sometimes tell people, "Are do you want to talk at me or do you want to talk with me? Um, because I I can sit here if you want to talk at me. And I don't know if people always realize that they're doing that, that they're, they are talking at you. And that sometimes they really do just want to talk at you. Um, but to say it calmly, that's so much of it is just to, re- to maintain – a calm place because the second that you match that emotion, that's when things start to go off the rails. My mind keeps going back to the flow of dialogue, being heard and speaking and then in turn being heard or hearing others. Um, The signs are so subtle for when somebody is listening and you're getting through. And it's almost like there's a flapper valve that's so sensitive. When you violate some of these rules, people just stop listening. And then you're talking at them. As soon as you're talking at them, anything that you say is basically wasted. It's not getting in. You have to be able to recognize when things are getting in and when things are not. And then how do you fix it when you realize that things are not getting in? Your example with your friend, that was great. Like she gave you a cue or a clue to say, I can't hear you anymore. And you took advantage of it to say, oh, shoot, let me correct. Mm-hmm. So you tried to correct or apologize where necessary to try to open that valve back up where you can then hear each other. How do you self? How, how do you question yourself like in a conversation? If you are worried that that person does not feel safe and does not feel like you're being curious, like what would be a question you could ask, let's say you're sitting next to someone on an airplane and you were talking about some political thing, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't know if that conversation is going well because you don't know them well enough to really to understand their triggers. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think a question would be to make sure that you're on the right path? Oh, you sorry. go. Oh, well, it's kind of funny because you're you gave the ex, uh, example of an airplane. And something I often say is, is this how is this landing for you? Uh huh. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> sorry. I just thought that was yeah. kind of funny. But mm-hmm. just that question and and be OK if they say I'm not understanding this or this is feeling a little aggressive mm-hmm. or it's giving the op- other person an opportunity to respond mm-hmm. to what you're sharing out. And then it gives you an opportunity to backtrack or clarify anything that needs to be clarified from the conversation. Shane, what were you thinking? A somewhat related but a separate thought. Oh. No, but I think that the that what I would contri- contribute to that is being able to recognize the signs that someone is not safe. Are they attacking? Are they shutting down? Are they withdrawing? Um, there are a lot of things that you can look for beyond just body language. Like body language is a good indicator of someone's uh, listening state. But then how they're reacting back to you, I think, is also good indicators, too. And one of the things that just stuck with me so much was to be able to depersonalize people's reaction and see it as an indicator. Instead of judging it and personalizing how they're acting towards me, yeah, she just said something very cutting. But I can step out of my body and say, ooh, she's feeling attacked, so she's attacking back. Things are not safe. Now what can I do to fix it instead of personalizing it? 
It's such a good point. That concept of how people are responding is a reflection of them, not me. Mm. I might not be very clear. Maybe I need to, you know, clarify a few different things. Maybe I need to go backtrack. But I think that that idea is really helpful. I know that that concept has really helped me in my relationships, especially with my kiddos and, and some of my friends. Just that idea that if they're going to respond that way, that's on them. I don't have to integrate it into who I am. I can try to understand why they're responding that way, but I don't, I'm a differentiated person. I'm not enmeshed with who they are. And so I need to be, I need to have that separation with them, that psychological separation so that I can maintain that emotional separation in terms of, I don't have to take on their emotions because they're experiencing them. Yeah. Can I kind of zoom back out? Sure. Talk about our theme and then ask a question. And a lot of this is for the brothers in the audience, like the two men that listen to my podcast. <laughs> Actually, 20%, I think, just of men listen. That's fine. <laughs> Let me throw it out of there and let's just play with it. Okay. All right. I'm not saying that it's true or not, but let's just play with it. Is it possible to differentiate what you feel about the person versus what you feel about what they say? And I say this because I'm a guy and I derp things up all the time. Men are master derpers. We just say the wrong thing or we say it the wrong way or the things that we say. I often think, oh my gosh, I said this and I can see how you're taking this, Natalie, and it is not the way that I intended it to be taken. That's not true. I'm always perfectly passive and, and in control. You're wonderful 100% of the time. Um <laughs> I, I just think <laughs> there are so many times where I wish that I could hit the erase button and say, okay, can you permit me and erase? Like, can I say this differently without you thinking bad about me? Right. Like, I don't want you to think bad about me. I want a chance to change it. I could take that yeah. as your wife, like, because yeah. I think that that has something to do with it, is that it would, for me, it would be what is the pattern? Um, because you have proven very consistently that one you are genuinely curious about what I think, and you have proven time and time again you are never intending to injure. So because I have those two trusts, I can get mad at you, but I know that you're not trying to injure me, and I know that even in that, in that scenario where we're not, we're not agreeing, I still feel safe. So there's an establishment in that relationship consistently that you do want to truly understand. So as a spouse, I would say that's how – because you do derp some stuff up. You know, sometimes you just like – I know. guess I'm asking – So – But I get – so you're – but you're thinking more broad. So I am going to throw out because I think it's really important or, or this is where I uh, – the place that I come from is that I wouldn't categorize it as men and women because that's a stereotype to me that I think I don't prescri- – like. I'm just using men and women yeah. in this example. Okay. There are times when we say something and we share an opinion and it triggers somebody. And you were talking about feelings earlier, feelings leading to actions. Mm-hmm. How we feel is a huge indicator about how we act. Mm-hmm. We will act towards somebody the way that we feel about them. Can we put? Can we somehow sever that to say, yeah, I, you have a different opinion than I do? Or you said something that indicates that you have a different opinion. I don't like that, but I can still like you. 
So that idea that you're talking about is related to um, differentiation versus enmeshment. Are you, are you guys familiar with these terms? Just in you talking about it earlier. Okay. So someone, and I'm not going to get this, this is just based on stuff that I've read, but basically people who are differentiated can do what you're just, what you're wondering about. They can have a conversation with someone. It can even get heated. They can, someone might say something that they don't like, but that's not going to That person's opinion on that thing that you're talking about is not going to impact how they feel about that person because they're psychologically separated from them. Someone who's differentiated typically has a solid sense of self. They feel comfortable in who they are and they're not going to be, I don't know what the right word is, but they're not going to be, like if someone, like if my spouse were to come into the room and he were upset and I could... And I was feeling, and I, all of a sudden I started to take on his emotions and, oh my gosh, I'm so mad and angry with you now. That is someone who is enmeshed generally. That is someone who is not able to separate their feelings from someone else. Or, right, if someone's having a bad day, that doesn't mean I have to have a bad day. Or my kid's angry with me. Well, I can still be mindful and thoughtful that my child is angry with me, but that doesn't have to impact the happiness of my day. So when someone comes in, And if they say something that's awful and just so cruddy, that doesn't have to impact how someone feels about them. Does that make sense? I'm not, I don't know if I'm describing this really well. It's definitely something to go look up because there are some people who have written some great articles on differentiation and enmeshment, but that really kind of points to, I think, what you're talking about and, and Natalie's example of, hey, I can speak to this as your wife and, and the pattern and tracking just listening to you makes me think, I think that I'm way more enmeshed in a lot of things than I should be. You know what? When I hear that, I think, oh, when do, how often do I really connect with what that other person said? And now it's triggered all these emotions about what I feel about them as a person. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing from you is those are indicators of being enmeshed as opposed to being differentiated. Can it also apply to being enmeshed with a group? Oh, absolutely. So I'm just like so much of what I see from this anger and with crucial conversations is that we can't take ourselves as an individual outside of the groups that we we connect ourselves with. So the group, um, and I don't want to say mob mentality because that that's very negative, but it, it, it can apply that when we have decided that this group represents us, we have to be loyal to that group and we can't think outside that group. And if we do... It's hard and it's exhausting and it's just easier to think as the group. And so we're coming into a conversation with an individual with a mob mentality. We are of no longer, we are not our individual curious self. We are coming as a person who is a part of the Whig party, right? I'm just going to use a party that's no longer in existence so nobody gets mad at me. <laughs> so we're part of a party. We're part of a belief structure. We're part of a, any kind of organization and we speak from that organization. And what I'd love to do is to have someone come into the room and say, I would like to come in from a place outside of that group that we've decided to title ourselves with. I don't like to title myself with groups, but many people like that, and that's fine. Can we come in from a conversation where we remove that grouping and just talk as individuals? And I 
don't feel like we're doing that as often as as maybe we need to. Mm-hmm. Probably true. I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I don't know. I'm just. It, I don't. Maybe that's a. I don't. I don't know. I. No, that's. I hurt your... for my country right now because I feel like it is. It's. It's a screaming mob, and I can't have a conversation with that. And that mob is angry. And where's there any movement with that? And it's it everywhere. I mean, in in every kind of idea you can imagine. It is loud and it is tenacious and it is uh, a temper tantrum. And what I'm realizing is the mob is never going to be settled. But we as individuals can separate ourselves from that. Even if we continue loyalty to it, we can have conversations that don't have to be part of that chaos and that yelling. Yeah, I saw a really beautiful example. I just want to like shout it out in our community a couple years ago, actually, um, during, well, during COVID-19 and the Mm -hmm. shutdown. And we know that there were so many different emotions and opinions and perspectives on that one. And one of them had to do with parents not feeling heard within the West Ada School District. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of different groups that sprung up from that to try to get their point across. And in that whole process, I I was a part of a group and and I worked to try to communicate with the superintendent and with the school board and try to have some really productive conversations. There was a man and his name was David Benetti. I don't know. Are you guys familiar with David? Mm-mm. He started the West Ada Parent Organiza- Association. They call it WAPA. And he came in and he said, this is my goal. And if you want to be a part of this goal... You can, you know, get on this website and do all these different, you know, sign up for the email. He said, I'm going to go to these school board meetings and I want to hold our school board accountable for what they're saying. And I want to advocate for this particular mission. And I remember attending one of the meetings. Everyone was wearing yellow T-shirts and and it was hard. You know, that that whole piece was hard. But he came in and I remember a school board meeting. The school board has rules for how to conduct that meeting. And while he was there and there were a lot of other parents in the room, the, they were going up and they were, I think it was the public comment section at that time. And some people were cheering and it was an inappropriate time to be cheering. Mm-hmm. And so David, he kept turning to the group and saying, no, no, this is not the time for this now. Mm-hmm. We will have our chance. Be quiet, please. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he was the leader of this group. And what he did was... He came out and he didn't agree with the school board, right? He had a different opinion and he made his intention known and he got a group of parents who cared just like he did and he advocated for kids and he was willing to work with the school district, uh, the school board, but he was also not afraid to say when he disagreed with them. Well, he did such a fantastic job at what he did and parents could see that he could be trusted, um, that he... And the school, and he had a good enough experience with the school board that when that seat popped up in the zone, he applied to be on the school board. And a lot of people asked me, they said, "Are Alexis, are you going to apply to be on the school board? Because I have the experience and, and the background. And I actually talked to David and David was great. He's like, hey, I really believe in trying to get as many people as possible to sign up because we care about kids and I'm you know, I'm happy to have a lot of people sign up. And I thought to myself, I was really reflective on it. And I thought, I want, 
I want someone in there who's going to do a good job and who cares about kids and who has shown that he knows how to be, you know, they know how to be civil and share their feelings in a way that is respectful and know how to advocate for kids and know that and to show that they can work with people. And so I chose not to apply because I thought David has just really shown that he knows how to do all of those different things. Mm -hmm. And so I had David, I chose not to apply and David applied and he got it. And he has done such a great job in that role. But to me, that is someone who cared about something in his community, wasn't afraid to think differently from someone else, and went about it in a way of gathering other voices and and shared his message with a group in a way that was super civil. And so I feel like it's totally possible. People just need to take the time to do it and to really find the people who are doing it in a way that shows civility and respect and and, you know, respect other people. I think I like that you said respect is that when we, I think we are truly focused on our community when we respect the opposing side as much as we respect the side we're coming from. If we are coming into a discussion and we are instantly deciding not to respect the other side, then we have already failed. And it is so difficult to show respect when you are impassioned against something. But that is how we, that's how we, that's how we stave violence is violence is not going to come when there is respect for both sides and respect for the community at whole. Mm. Um, we want to honor your time. You've already been so generous with your time with us so far. Um, what final tidbits or tools would you leave with the listeners for how to navigate some of these hard conversations? I think one of the, Brene Brown has said to be clear is to be kind. And so being okay with setting a boundary with someone or stating your intention in a conversation as you're adding to that pool is really valuable. And holding space for someone, we've talked about this a couple of times, but holding space for other people to feel their feelings. And knowing that in the end, it's practicing. If you don't get it right the first time, that's okay. Just keep at it because behavior changes take time. And so just like believe in yourself and believe in the process that you can change and you can make a difference in the way that you're interacting with people and that it really matters. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, if people want to know more about you or reach out to you, um, asking for some tools, where can they find you? So I'm on social media on Instagram at the.alexis.morgan. I'm on Facebook and TikTok, and I also have a website. It's... Uh, TheAlexisMorgan.com. Awesome. Simple. Easy. It's super simple. All right. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you so much this for coming. This is fun. Great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is the Boise Bubble Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Instagram at the Boise Bubble. And for more information about our community, follow at Hello Meridian. See you next time. The Boise Bubble Podcast is sponsored by Volkswagen of Boise. Interested in buying a Volkswagen in the Treasure Valley? Head to www.volkswagenofboise.com to learn more.